Welcome to a podcast of the Knox County Public Library in Knoxville, Tennessee. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Book Sandwiched In. I'm Rusha Sams, president of Friends. Today, we're welcoming Dr. Kelsey Ellis. She will be discussing the cure for catastrophe, how we can stop manufacturing natural disasters by Robert Muir Wood. Dr. Ellis is an assistant professor in the Department of Geography at the University of Tennessee. Dr. Ellis is a hazard climatologist focusing on the spatial and temporal patterns of atmospheric hazards, most often hurricanes and tornadoes. Ellis collaborates with researchers in other disciplines to understand hazards from a more holistic approach in an attempt to lessen human risk and or the vulnerability to weather and climate hazards. Welcome, Dr. Ellis. Hi, everyone. Thank you for coming today. Um, So my research is based in atmospheric science, looking at hurricanes and tornadoes. And the book I'm talking to you about today is by someone that studies catastrophes around the world. He actually visits disaster landscapes, um, often after earthquakes, and he'll go and look at the damage and figure out what people could have done differently to maybe make it less of a disaster. And so he focuses mainly on earthquakes, and I focus mainly on tornadoes and hurricanes. So I'm going to take a lot of his themes and talk to you about how they relate to tornadoes, specifically in Tennessee for the most part. So I'm going to start with our little participation activity. Close your eyes. You're in bed asleep, so it makes sense that your eyes are closed, Um, and you get a tornado warning. So picture yourself getting the tornado warning, and now picture what you would do next. Um, So who can tell us how they first received the tornado warning? Yeah, so weather alerts on your phone. On a recent interview with a local National Weather Service office, actually the one in Nashville, the warning coordinating meteorologist, which is the one that is most concerned about making sure people get warnings, says her favorite thing about the weather alerts is no one really knows how to turn them off. So most people can't, so they're forced to get warnings even if they don't want them. Um, Anyone else have a different way of getting them? Yeah, we don't have sirens in Knoxville, and plus, sirens were created for people that are outside. And so they're not supposed to wake you up in your sleep. They're supposed to warn people that are outside that something's going on and they should get more information. So sirens are really dangerous when people don't know if they have them and then what they're supposed to do about sirens. A weather radio? Yeah, this is something the Weather Service is working on. On average, and they're getting better and better, on average, 25% of warnings are verified, meaning a tornado does occur within the polygon. So say you get four, you probably want to respond to all four, right? Because one of them's likely to have a tornado in the area. People don't even pay attention when they get the warning. So imagine you're at night. When I first started this project um, on tornado vulnerability, I just sleep trained my daughter who didn't sleep for three months straight. Um, and so I just imagined, I meant, say I'm in a mobile home. You know, I just sleep trained my daughter and I hadn't had a good night's sleep in a long time. And my weather late radio or my cell phone goes off at 3 a.m. What I'm supposed to do is wake her up. And technically I have on average 14 minutes to get her to a safe place. So wake up my daughter, go down the street to a shelter or someone else's house, and then say that happens the next night, right? Because outbreaks often happen in a row. And then nothing happened, and nothing happened, and then I'm going to stop responding. And so these are issues that they're dealing with because if you're in a mo- especially in a mobile home, you have to make safest decisions. So what were your decisions when you got your warning at night? So say you were woken up and you were lucky enough to be woken up. Um, before I move there, I should say you're supposed to have three ways to get warnings. 
Um, so whether it's your cell phone, maybe you tell a neighbor to contact you if there's a warning, and your weather radio. You're supposed to have three ways to make sure you do get them. Um, I only have one, so I'm slightly hypocritical. I keep saying we need to get a weather radio because I preach about them, um, but it is something to take seriously in Tennessee. Um, in Tennessee, half of our tornadoes happen at night, and 73% of our tornado fatalities. So most people that die from tornadoes in Tennessee, it happens at night. And the bulk of tornado fatalities happen in Memphis. Um, that's the bullseye of tornado fatalities in the world. And so it's a really serious thing, which is why I always bring it up in the world. Yes. Mm -hmm. So what do you do then when you get a warning so you're not one of those statistics? Yeah, so the, so the correct... If you're in a mobile home, you're always supposed to evacuate. You're better off in a ditch. You're supposed to lay down in a ditch if you have nowhere else to go. Um, and then if you're in a sturdy single-family home or another building, you put as many walls between you and the storm as possible. So that would probably be a basement or better off a, a hallway in the basement um, far away from windows. Um, but it's interesting because we're learning that a lot of single-family homes aren't built at the same level, right? And so some people do the right thing and still die. And so we're talking about how engineers can give people more information about their specific home before they decide to shelter in place. Um, so it's complicated decisions people make during um, disasters or during hazards. And so that kind of brings up the fact that um, a hazard and a disaster are something different. So in this book, he talks about disasters or catastrophes. I usually say disasters. Um, natural hazards is a class we teach at UT, and we teach people about earthquakes and hurricanes and tornadoes. And these are natural events that happen across the Earth's surface no matter what. And it's really crazy when you think about all the Earth is trying to do, especially for atmospheric hazards, is make up for the fact that the equator is so much hotter than the poles. And so this causes all different types of circulations that ultimately cause tornadoes in the middle latitudes where we are. And so that's a hazard, right, these weather hazards and earthquakes. But when it turns into a disaster or a catastrophe, it's because people probably didn't make the right decision, whether that's the public or whether that's leaders, um, engineers, the person that built your house. Maybe it's not the right building materials. Maybe you got a warning and didn't respond correctly. But those are the things that cause loss of life and property and turn hazards into disasters. And so that's what this book is about. And he really focuses on earthquakes and so talking about different structures that are built in different places that dif have different earthquake probabilities versus hurricanes, and so what should your house be made of, um, and how can we decrease earthquake losses? Um, so a quote from Muirwood, the author, um, he says, while the agents of destruction are natural, the outcomes are all too human and unnatural. Disasters are determined by what we build, where we choose to live, how we prepare, and how we communicate danger. And so for my hazards, for weather hazards, it's usually, did you engineer your home correctly? If you're living in a place that is hit by hurricanes, are you on stilts? Can it withstand wind speeds? And then is the public aware and do they respond correctly? And so you can imagine a hurricane striking a place where the houses are all built really well on stilts, can withstand wind speeds of a Category 5 hurricane, all the people respond to the hurricane warning and leave. So not much loss of life or economy. Or you can, a hurricane can strike an area that's not used to getting hurricanes, the houses weren't built appropriately, and then people also don't respond. They say it won't happen here, and then you have loss of life and property. So that turns that hazard into a disaster. So that leads to education. People need to understand their risk in order to respond appropriately. Muir Wood tells the story of a tsunami in 2014 in Thailand 
where a 10-year-old girl was vacationing, an English girl was vacationing with her family, and she heard there was an earthquake, and she yelled at everyone to run up a hill. And people followed. They're like, I don't know why she, and, you know, and people, one person followed, another followed, and then everyone, about 100 tourists ran up a hill, and she saved their lives from a tsunami, all because her teacher just taught her about earthquakes and tsunamis in school. And so as a professor who also who gets to teach students and also get to do lectures like this, I always start off talking about tornado safety because maybe I can save a few people just by teaching them what you are supposed to do. So maybe a couple people will actually do it. Plug that weather radio back in. <laughs> um, we are also looking, because kids are important, right? This is a 10-year-old girl that saved adult lives. And so we're also looking into how maybe we can improve storm safety in Tennessee and other areas by going to the kids first. And so one of my students made a choose your own adventure storm chase. And it's a PowerPoint where I go to each slide and the students can vote on what we should do in our van. And some of the decisions are unsafe and some of them are safe, but they have a fun time doing it. Sometimes they go through the core of the storm and get rained on by hail and the windshield breaks and we have to stop. Um, and then other ones, they make better decisions. And then we end that lecture with a serious talk about storm safety. And they create a severe weather action plan. And it's called a swap because they're supposed to swap it with their friends and family and teach them something about severe weather safety. And we're hoping that getting to the kids will actually get to the parents because they, we are seeing that they can help encourage people to make the right decisions during hazards. Um, so the tsunami story is also an example of social cohesion, which, en which ends up being important in hazards, making sure that everyone gets all the information they need, whether it's an elderly person during an extreme heat event, checking on them, making sure they're okay, and making sure that they understand they're at risk, or whether it's making sure that someone knows that there is a tornado warning in the area. Um, so education is obviously really important, but it only takes us so far. Um, as Muirwood says in the book, um, there's a gap between knowledge and application. So you know what you're supposed to do, but are you actually doing that? And whether that's building the appropriate type of house or responding to the warning correctly. One example is we know that people understand what a tornado watch and what a tornado warning is well enough to know about what they should do. So you may not know the exact definition of a watcher warning, but you know it kind of went that the warning means you need to do something right now, and people still choose not to do it. A quote from the book about education that I really liked was, is it education or concrete defenses that provides the greatest protection from floods? So are people better protected from floods if they're more educated and know what they're supposed to do, or is it actually building a flood wall? So I would argue that it's a combination of both, making sure that they're aware and that we also try to protect people using the safest building materials possible. But in order to have safe building materials or flood walls, people have to spend money. And so then you get into the process of trying to make sure people understand that they are at risk. So it goes back to knowledge. You have a hazard that affects you in this area, so we need to spend money to protect you. Um, and one thing that keeps people from wanting to spend money is something we call complacency. And we throw that word a lot around in um, tornado vulnerability literature. And so I looked up the definition online just to see what it said. And it used the words smugness and self-satisfaction. And it's talking, when we talk about it, we're saying people are complacent. They don't respond to warnings. And so the actual definition is saying you're too smug and self-satisfied to respond to warnings. But it means like you're comfortable. You think you're safe. And you have this false sense of security. And so our research shows, and this was we interviewed you folks. We interviewed um, 600 people in Knox County and three surrounding counties. And if people responded appropriately to a warning, if they said they would, it was because they either had prior experience with tornadoes or they think they're at a high risk. So those people that know tornadoes can cause harm and those that think they happen here are the ones that respond. Whereas people that believe in luck 
and believe in fate, like whatever happens, happens, I'm going to die or I'm not going to die, or they've never experienced tornadoes, they don't respond as safely. So they're not likely to go to a safe place or to make sure they get their warnings at night. So those people also aren't going to spend money, right, on protecting things. They don't think it's very important. Complacency works at a larger scale then as well because politicians can't spend money if people don't want them to, right? So you have all of these factors going into whether or not we make the best decisions on how to protect ourselves using our finances. Muir Wood in the book says, everyone questions why money should be diverted to protect against a disaster that may not happen in their lifetime. So if you don't think it's going to happen to you, then you would like the money spent elsewhere. So then say an event does happen. Think about our flooding in Knoxville. Now you feel more vulnerable to it, right? You think that there's a possibility that it can happen. So people are more likely to, number one, listen to warnings. Now when you hear there's a flash flood warning, you may be more likely to assume it's going to happen because we saw how severe flash flooding can be in Knoxville. And with his tsunami story, he talks about how there was a tsunami in another location where 40 years later they had a major tsunami. And that tsunami was so large that it was in their memory still and people responded more appropriately. So having um, experienced something makes you pay more attention and maybe be more willing to spend money to protect yourself. So that also matches my Tennessee tornado research where if you've experienced it, you're more likely to respond. Um, when we met with the National Weather Service forecasters, they also talked about that intensity bit. So Mirawood said, because that tsunami was so severe, people remembered it 40 years later. And we can name towns that were ravaged by tornadoes, and those towns don't forget. They remember. Tuscaloosa remembers. They're going to respond to tornado warnings the rest of the time they live in Tuscaloosa because of what happened in 2011. A second way the disaster changes people is now they're willing to spend that money. So Tuscaloosa people now, yeah, update our sirens, buy people weather radios, educate the schools. Um, and as Muir Wood says, the irony of a catastrophe is that the funds to prevent it only become available after it has happened. And then if we wait too long to take advantage of the opportunity, the money will be spent elsewhere. So you have to take advantage of disasters in order to protect yourself from the next one. He also says that the point that people demand action is when we call it intolerable risk. So when you finally decide you're at such a great risk that it's intolerable and you demand action and people need to do something about it. And so when you think about the flooding in Knoxville, are we at that point of intolerable risk yet? Probably not, right? It's happened once. And so he says one catastrophe is a chance. It happens by chance, but two is a problem. So you can imagine if people's homes flood in Knoxville again, if people's neighborhoods are blocked off for a week or more, then we're going to start demanding some action um, and have things change to make people safer. So that reminds me a lot of my own research. It's important for me to get tenure to keep my job. And to do that, I have to get funding from a national agency. And so I got funded by NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, to work on Vortex Southeast, which is focused on how to save people in the southeast from tornadoes. Because like I said, in Memphis, it's that bullseye of tornado fatalities, and it spreads across the southeast. So while there may be more tornadoes in the Great Plains, more people are dying here. And Tuscaloosa, in 2011, really brought that to people's attention. So even politicians that may not know anything about tornadoes are like, we need to do something about this. So Congress mandated Vortex Southeast. They put a bunch of money, said, Noah, you have to manage this project um, and hire people to figure out what's happening in the southeast and how we can keep people safe. Luckily, I got funded, so I get to keep my job. And then I also get to um, learn a lot more about the southeast tornado problem, specifically in Tennessee. 
And so there's three parts to Vortex Southeast. It shows how complicated it is to get people prepared for disasters. One part is field meteorologists, storm chasers. And so it's people going out and uh, collecting data in the field in the southeast. So you forecast a tornado event maybe three days in advance. They go out with a bunch of Doppler radars on wheels and drive around and aim them at storms so we can understand more about tornadoes. Um, They have people well in advance of the storm launching balloons to understand what the environment looks like from the ground up to the jet stream. And they have students that are hired to stand in one place with what we call a stick mesonet um, and just make sure it doesn't blow away and it will collect data as a storm goes by. And so that's one aspect of Vortex Southeast. Another is the operational meteorologists, which is a fancy word for saying the National Weather Service forecasters. So these are the people that are creating the forecasts locally. Ours is in Morristown, um, and they're putting out the tornado warnings. And so they're important because they are amazing scientists that are also realizing that they're what keeps people safe. So their motto is to protect life and property. So they need to protect life, and so they need to figure out how to communicate their science. And so then there's also social scientists, and that's kind of where, even though I'm a climatologist, that's where my grant falls, and it's looking at how people understand their risk and how they respond to it. So I was at a conference this weekend, and the director of the National Weather Service was there, and he gave an amazing example of why this research is important. So there were two tornado outbreaks in a similar area, one in 1974 and one in 2011. Both had very similar statistics. 150 to 200 tornadoes over 40 hours, some strong tornadoes, EF3, EF4, EF5. The tornadoes traveled for about 2,500 miles. So we're talking really large-scale outbreak, one in 74, one in 2011. So the major difference is, imagine a tornado outbreak in 1974. The night before it happens, the Weather Service says, oh, there might be something severe tomorrow. And they put out what they called, we don't use the term anymore, they put out what they called an indication So they were indicating that maybe there would be tornadoes the next day. The first tornado occurs, and then they start putting tornado warnings on storms. They couldn't do it before then. 2011, five days before the event, we start putting out out convective outlooks that say there's a high risk in this area. Warnings are put out now by looking at radar as well, and so they can say it doesn't have to touch down yet. We can say that storm, we have a radar-indicated tornado. That storm can probably produce a tornado, so we're going to put a warning on it. The average lead time was 24 minutes, so people on average got 24 minutes warning that a tornado was coming their way compared to no lead time. Which one do you think had more fatalities? It's kind of a trick question. They were exactly the same. So each outbreak killed about 300 people. And so the National Weather Service first is like celebrating, right? They did an amazing forecast, nailed it five days out of a severe weather outbreak, 24-minute average lead time, same number of people died. And so sometimes it seems that the gap between knowledge and action is insurmountable. Like how are we going to keep people safe if they're not heeding the warnings? And to make it more challenging, Muir Wood studies earthquakes. So those you can't even forecast. And so he's trying to get people to prepare for something well in advance of the disaster to prevent the catastrophe from happening in the first place. He does talk a little bit about different hazard types, and he uses the three little pigs as an example. So in the traditional story, the wolf blows the house down, right? And so imagine it was the sticks, he blew it down, and then bricks, he couldn't blow the house down, and so the pig in the brick house survives. And I think the brothers or sisters were in there with it, um, depending on which version you read. And then imagine now it's a quake wolf. So the wolf comes and shakes the houses. Well, if he shakes the stick house, so he's an earthquake now, if he shakes the stick house, and they may fall, some stuff may fall down, but the pigs are going to live. 
if he quakes the brick house, they would all die in the brick house. And so it shows the example of, do you have a quake wolf? Do you have a wolf that's blowing? Right? And so that's going to determine what type of structure you need to live in. But interestingly, as the development of concrete and the use of brick moved throughout the U.S., we all did the same thing. And so we were building the same types of houses in different places, and that really created a problem. It talks about mobile homes as well. As a tornado researcher, I thought it was really interesting how mobile homes are carried on the backs of trucks, right? And so they say wide load, and you see them being carried on the backs of these trucks. When the speed limit was changed from 55 to 70 in a lot of places, mobile homes were exploding on the backs of trucks because they couldn't handle the wind speeds. And so he says that he thinks it was a minor improvement on mobile home safety occurred when people had to make them strong enough to drive down a 70 mile per hour highway. And so now they can withstand 70 mile per hour winds instead of 55. So on top of all that, um, Muirwood has a chapter at the very end and says we're turning up the heat, right? And so now we have to deal with climate change. So we can't forget that these hazards, especially the ones I study, are changing in a warmer climate. And people ask things like, will we have more hurricanes? Will we have tornadoes? Um, those are really complicated questions to answer. Some won't happen more often, but they'll happen. Maybe they'll shift and move into different places, or some will get stronger. And so I will give you some key summary points of tornadoes and hurricanes. Um, so tornadoes, more are happening on fewer days. So less days where there's like one tornado, but more where there's multiple. So maybe more tornado outbreaks and less like one tornado days. They have more kinetic energy. So basically they have more intensity over a wider span. So they're getting larger and stronger. And they're also shifting in longitude. They're moving eastward in the U.S. So the southeast is becoming more of a tornado hub. And there's also our decisions that we make on the landscape that are affecting things. So even if the tornado data are too challenging to understand what's happening, we know that people are expanding across the landscape. And so suburbs are growing. And one of my colleagues that I used to storm chase with, he calls it the expanding bullseye effect, that the bullseye that tornadoes hit is growing. And so more people are there. And so that's going to make loss of life and property even greater. For hurricanes, the tagline for hurricanes in, in the North Atlantic, those that affect us in the Southeast, is that the strongest are getting stronger. So the top 10% of hurricanes are getting stronger, but not the mean. So the fewest strong ones will be a few miles per hour stronger year after year after year. They're also maybe shifting in latitude, especially where they are at their strongest point. And on top of that, we're moving more and more people to the coastline and more and more money to the coastline where these hurricanes hit. So climate change is complex. And looking at other hazards, I focused on tornadoes and hurricanes, but we have heat waves and cold air outbreaks and things like that. And the jet stream is getting wavier and stalling. So instead of just like being wetter or drier, we're both. We're wetter, we're drier, we're hotter, and we're colder. And so we have all of these extremes to think about and to plan for. And that's a lot to mitigate and to prepare for. So in conclusion, what do we do? In the tornado world, we are focusing on what we call research to operations, meaning doing research that actually is ready to put into operation and make a difference. And so my work is working directly with the National Weather Service so that whatever we figure out, they can apply for their future um, tornado outbreaks and ways that they communicate with people. Um, I, I, yeah, I'm kind of embarrassed. In my dissertation, I think I thought I was saving lives just by studying hurricanes, right? So I studied hurricanes, looked at like where their tracks normally went, and I would write grants and say, well, it will help people because I'm learning more about hurricanes. And now I'm realizing that's not enough, right? So this research to operations is really important. Do research that people can use to make a difference. 
Um, they're also working really hard on building relationships in the National Weather Service, so talking to emergency managers well before events so that when something happens, they trust each other and know how to communicate with each other. Mirror Wood describes our future hazard world really interestingly. The last chapter of the book talks about earthquake happening and drones are going out and reporting damage information to people in some hub somewhere. And then they're sending robots out that'll move buildings to get to save people and get them out from underneath. And he says, we'll create these cities also then that can withstand these earthquakes and then we'll be cured of the earthquake catastrophe. And he puts it in like year 2040 or something. So really soon that all these people could be saved from earthquakes. But I'm a little bit more uh, pessimistic. And because mainly my hazards are very different from the earthquake hazard, it's not just about building a home that can withstand it. It's more about using our forecasts and our predictions and making sure people see them, understand them, and then make the safest decisions. Because you can't forecast an earthquake. So people are either on a street or they're not, and that's just where they are. But we can predict a tornado. And so people are on the street or they're in a safe place. And so we need people to make those safe decisions. So my outlook is more bleak. There is no cure for the catastrophe, but through strong science and coordinated communication and good decision making, we can at least offer a prescription for safety. So thanks for coming, and I'd be happy to take your questions. In earthquake-prone areas, there have been upgrades to buildings. Are there any places in the U.S. where tornado upgrades are being considered or implemented? Thank you for the question. The only thing that um, reminds me of is how mobile homes now are expected to be anchored down, and so that makes a really big difference, so maybe they won't be likely to roll. But housing, no. And so that's one of the fears of the meteorologists is that we think that all single-family homes can withstand you know, these winds, at least if people get into the hallways or go into their basements, they'll be okay, and now we're not so sure. And my friend's a National Weather Service forecaster in Huntsville, and she's seen people make the right decision and still die from the tornado. And so we need more information about specific homes. Not each home can withstand the same amount of winds. Hi, thanks for your insights. I have a tornado question and then a hurricane question. All right. Okay. Tornado question. Have, has anyone ever figured out what that tri-state tornado was early in the 1900s? Have you done some research on that? The one that went through Missouri and Illinois and Indiana? Because I've read several books and looked at research, and they're not sure if that was a... Uh, like an F6 off the charts or a series of tornadoes? I'm not sure, and I don't know if we'll ever get more information on that. We still struggle with any outbreak that happens trying to figure out how many tornadoes there are because uh -huh. you can't tell if a tornado traveled for 200 miles or if one picked up and, you know, and dropped down. Yeah. So was it six or was it one? And so I don't know if we'll ever figure that out. I haven't paid that much attention to that specific case study. Yeah. We also, though, have realized that we used to overestimate wind speeds, and so mm -hmm. that's why we changed to the enhanced Fujita scale instead of just the Fujita scale. We used to think they were like 300 miles per hour, and now we're realizing they're a little weaker than we thought. Yeah, as I say, I've read several accounts of that, and uh, all the experts seem to be sort of uh, out to sea because it killed hundreds of people, and they'd never been a, sort of an equivalent to that. So maybe that was just like a black swan that happens every 100 years or something mm -hmm. crazy. The hurricane question is, what do you feel about Jim Cantore's uh, theory or suggestion that we should just evacuate the entire East and Gulf Coast with a distance of a mile and turn the entire coastline into a park or a golf course. That's probably politically impossible, but that would 
save us billions of dollars, wouldn't it, if we could do that? Yeah, it would. It sounds like a great idea if, if we could actually do that. There's an interesting fact, and this is where I thought you were going with evacuating, and I don't remember the exact number, but per mile of coastline that's evacuated, it's like a million dollars or something. And so that's why these forecasts have to be really good, and the politicians and the leaders have to really think about who needs to evacuate, because if you over-evacuate, you waste a ton of money. So maybe you'd evacuate less if they all lived a mile inland, so that could be helpful. <laughs> Some of our mitigation procedures can actually cause more disasters. And I mean, look at Hurricane Katrina. The author brings up, would the flood wall, would the concrete wall be a better defense? And his answer in there was no, because people count on that wall and think it will protect them and then it doesn't. So it also creates a false sense of security. He also goes pretty deep into insurance because he works for a reinsurance company, which is why he goes out and figures out what areas could have done things differently. And he works with catastrophe models to figure out how much insurance should cost. Insurance plays a very large role in how we prepare for disasters. And sometimes it's not the best way. Thank you. Thank you for listening to and sharing the Knox County Public Library podcast. Find other episodes and life-changing resources at knoxlib.org.